0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the fourth season of McGill Cares webcast series, supporting family and informal care partners. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's dementia education program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee the program, who include Dr. José Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine, and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly of the McGill University Research Centre for Studies in Ageing. McGill Cares is supported by the Amelia Saputo Community Outreach for Dementia Care. I would like everyone to know that the McGill Dementia Education Program offers a very comprehensive range of free resources to educate and support persons living with dementia, family and informal care partners, healthcare professionals, medical students, and the public at large, One of our most important resources is the Dementia Companion Guide, which can be downloaded for free and is now available in over 10 different languages. So just go to mcgill.ca slash dementia, click on the Dementia Companion Guide and please begin reading. So we're kicking off the fourth season with a very important topic, which is a novel approach, which exploring the experience of stress in formal and informal dementia care partners. And with me is one of our national leading experts in this field. My guest today is Dr. Zainor Ismael, a clinical scientist, clinician scientist, and professor of psychiatry, neurology, epidemiology, and pathology at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute and O'Brien Institute for Public Health at the University of Calgary. He has a certification in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry and geriatric psychiatry, with over 20 years of clinical experience and sees patients through cognitive neurology and in seniors' homes. Dr. Ismail is chair of the Canadian Conference on Dementia, chair of the Canadian Consensus Conference on the Diagnosis and Treatment of Dementia, which generates Canadian dementia guidelines, the most recent iteration of which were published in 2020. He was also recently appointed as co-chair of the Government of Canada's Ministerial Advisory Board in Dementia, for which I too am very proud to be a part of. Um, Dr. Ismail has authored 250 peer-reviewed papers. He's the principal investigator of the nationwide CANProtect study, which is funded by Brain Canada, the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration and Aging, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and Gordie Howe Cares. I'm so grateful to have such an expert with me, as well as a colleague. Um, so welcome to McGill Cares.
1: Thank you very much, Claire, and thanks for the wonderful uh, introduction and the invitation to to lead off the uh, fourth season with a topic that's dear to us both, and that is uh, caregiving and, and caring for persons with dementia. So thank you very much for having me. As Claire mentioned, we're going to talk about caregivers and I want to discuss a novel approach to exploring the experience of stress in formal and informal dementia caregivers. How we are generating data to understand this better within the context of, a, of understanding what is dementia, what are the diseases that cause dementia, how does it affect the person with the disease and those who love them and, and care for them. So. We will review contributors to stress in dementia caregivers um, by describing an overall framework for assessing stress, providing clinical examples of contributors to stress, and then reviewing some preliminary data uh, from informal and informal Canadian caregivers that we have from the CanProtect protect study, which I'll describe shortly. As a bit of background, in clinic, sometimes uh, family members and, and patients they, they don't always know the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia or the, the terminology is vague to them. So the way I approach this is often I'll, I'll say, first of all, what do you know about dementia? And they might provide some sort of definition. <clears throat> and then I'll clarify it for them and then, and then move on. And, and usually what I say is something like, you know, dementia is a clinical syndrome that's characterized by the insidious onset and gradual progression of cognitive changes usually memory and that is associated with functional impairment and it's that functional impairment that then results in a diagnosis of of dementia prior to that it might be mild cognitive impairment or it might be subjective cognitive decline but it's the, the, the dependence on others to function that really is the hallmark of dementia now there are diseases which cause that syndrome of dementia. And the most common disease is Alzheimer disease, followed by vascular uh, cognitive impairment and and cerebrovascular disease. And there are rarer diseases. The next most common is probably uh, Lewy body disease, which is associated with Parkinsonism. And this is what, for example, Robin Williams had. And then uh, frontotemporal dementias and, and then different diseases that cause frontotemporal dementia. When we think about function, this little infographic I thought captured it nicely, we divide it into instrumental activities of daily living and then basic activities of daily living. And it's the instrumental activities of daily living that usually so show some change first and happen earlier on in the course, whereas the, the basic activities of, of daily living, the, the, the hygiene, the bathing, the grooming, the toileting, the ambulation, those happen later on. But it's at that IADL impairment stage that that um, there starts to be some impairment initially. It's subtle. People make more mistakes. They take longer. Um, it might lead to some sort of conflict for un, you know for 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 various reasons that that you know because of an undetected underlying disease. Um, this impairment might be attributed to other things, and again results in some stress or, or, or conflict. But then it becomes more apparent and family members, if available, may take over some of these roles. And then that ultimately progresses to the extent that people are are, are really fully dependent and, and functionally impaired. Um, when it comes to Alzheimer's disease specifically, there is a uh, National Institute of Aging and Alzheimer's Association in the US um, framework for it, which is a research definition, and some clinical staging. And it acknowledges that one can be symptom-free and still have the underlying disease for many years, maybe 15 years, before symptoms start to emerge, and that we can classify that as preclinical or prodromal or formal dementia. And that while we have a cognocentric model of dementia and we really think about memory and executive function under cognitive domains and the primacy of those symptoms. In fact, dementia is much more than that. And as mentioned, there is impairment in function, but there are also physical conditions in the living environment that affect how people um, you know, function and perform. And, and, and then there are the behavioral and psychological symptoms, um, which are the, the depression or anxiety or changes in, in behavior and personality that go along with this progressing disease, which can actually emerge in 30% of people with Alzheimer's disease before cognitive symptoms. So the cognocentric model alone doesn't capture everyone, especially at the early stage. Now, we measure all of these things clinically. And for example, in the family doc's office, or certainly in the specialist's office, you would get a Montreal cognitive assessment, for example, which is a screening tool. It's not a. It's not for diagnosis specifically. It's a screening tool, and it might lead you to consider diagnoses uh, once you work up other factors. But it probably is the most commonly used screening tool. I remember in 2005, when when the Mocha was was pretty new, um, we did a we did a, a survey of family doctors and found that you know a handful of percentage of them. We're using the Moca, and then when we when we did this a number of years later, um, it was by far and away the most uh, commonly used tool. So it has legs, and and it's um, well known. Now this is an objective test. We have a, a a patient or a person with you know potential cognitive impairment in front of us, and we would administer this test and score it and ask it. But what is really underappreciated, and this is a fundamental issue in dementia care is that we have to ask others who know this person if there are issues so as claire mentioned i'm chair of the canadian conference on dementia which will be held in toronto uh this november from the second through the fourth and one of the themes um, in the meeting is is uh, dementia in primary care and an important part of that theme is engaging family members caregivers care partners those who love and care for this person are with them to to help with understanding them, to help make a diagnosis, to help get all the information that's relevant. And um, unfortunately, in primary care, this is very hard, but it's absolutely necessary. And it's one of the, the major major themes in the conference this coming year. So what we do um, in clinic and what I do when I see um, new consults in seniors' homes and, and, senior and, and retirement residences is I also have a little package that I give to family members and, and caregivers. And if they're, for example, um, a new person to assisted living, then they would get um, the family would get this ECOG, which um, compares them in a number of cognitive domains to how they were 10 years ago. And it tests memory and executive function and language, and 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 it's a very helpful tool because it gets the family's perspective of how they are. And even visually, you can just look at it and see, hey, okay, these are the concerns. I better make sure I attend to those when I'm when I'm uh, assessing the patient and when I'm administering the, the, the testing myself. Um, I also have a package for those, for example, who are in a memory care unit and uh, for whom I get a consult. Then I have a package for the staff, the personal care aides, the LPNs, the nurses to provide other information. Um, the ECOG for them is not as relevant because it compares their current function to how they were 10 years ago. <clears throat> Sorry, and, and this is where the family caregivers are so incredibly valuable and important. We also assess function and that usually comes from the carer. And uh, here are a couple scales on the left, I think comes from the Bristol ADL scale and the right, the functional activities questionnaire. We also use the AD8, which is quick eight questions, a score above two might be consistent with dementia. There are various ways, um, but it's it's very important that we track and monitor function as much as we can, knowing that it's a proxy report And we're often not doing objective measures of function um, unless there are safety issues or we get a home OT assessment, which are very, very valuable and gold because we don't get them as often as we'd we'd like. As I mentioned, we have a cognocentric model and the dementia diagnosis is triggered by function, but behavior is a large part of dementia. And, And when you have comorbid behavioral changes in dementia, it's not a good sign. So if you take two groups of people with with cognitive impairment, with dementia, and you divide them up based on whether or not they have neuropsychiatric symptoms or behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, the group that have the behavioral symptoms, they do worse. They um, they have greater functional impairment, they have poorer quality of life, they're institutionalized earlier, there's a greater degree of caregiver burden, the overall economic costs are higher, They progress to severe dementia more quickly, and they have an accelerated mortality. So it's really imperative that we address and care for all aspects of dementia for the person with dementia and those who care for them. Here's a scale I use. It's uh, adapted from the mild behavioral impairment checklist that I use for new consults in in seniors homes, for example, um, that captures behaviors in various domains like uh, drive and motivation or apathy. Um, or affective symptoms of mood and anxiety, or um, agitation or impulsivity, um, or loss of social graces, tact and connectivity, and then uh, psychotic symptoms like starting to become suspicious, or seeing things, or having frank delusions. I'll focus a little bit just on agitation, one of those five domains, because it's underappreciated, Often detected late and only when there's an emergency, and this is very hard on carers. Um, the FDA once upon a time said they will not approve a drug for agitation until the field can actually define it well, because in the literature agitation is ill-defined, and people use agitation, aggression, and no one can can really come up with a consistent diagnosis. The international Psych- psychogeriatric uh, addressed that issue in 2015, and then with we revised the criteria this year. Um, which were published and now formalized uh, for an agitation definition that breaks it down into three domains, excessive motor activity, verbal aggression, and physical aggression. And what's important here is it highlights that agitation isn't just physical, that it can occur in other ways. And if we detect agitation earlier, we can address a potential stress for both the person with dementia and those who care for them. We can treat it more successfully with non-pharmacological treatments than we can physical aggression, where that works not as well. Um, And if medications are required, we can use gentler medications than the big guns that are often required for physical aggression. So early detection is very helpful from many fronts, but it's not appreciated how common the verbal aggression stage. And what the data tells us is um, that, that for those who develop verbal aggression they often can progress to physical aggression so addressing this early is good for many friends things to know about agitation is that that um it we we often consider agitation as something as episodic they have an episode of agitation studies will ask us how many episodes of agitation have they had but if someone is developing a style or tone or change in personality, such they have become more verbally aggressive, they resist against care, they're argumentative or rude. Um, and this is just their they're, they're changing way of interfacing with the world without any episodes of agitation. They are clearly having, having behavioral changes that are consistent with agitation. And sometimes caregivers <clears throat> are on eggshells. They, they do everything they can to try avoid an outburst but they're suffering even more and it's not addressed it's not diagnosed it's not treated and and it's an unmet need and a brewing issue that we often often see so it's really important that if you know as the brain changes we understand that people can have a shorter fuse and poorer frustration tolerance a loss of their filter rudeness or argumentativeness and this does not reflect on them as a human, as a person as who they are or who they were. And I think that's really important. People might have stigma um, around putting a diagnosis to someone because it might color their impression of this person. Um, and it's it's nothing like that. The diagnoses are to help us improve the quality of life, the function, the symptoms uh, for, for everyone involved. And when someone develops, Changes associated with their brain disease. It has nothing to do with who they are and who they were. They remain that person. And 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 everyone needs to be reminded that you know this is a this is a disease and a, and a syndrome that results in great hardship for some. Now, as we know, caregivers are underappreciated, underrecognized, overburdened, and there are resources. Um, and as Claire mentioned, the Dementia Caregiver Guidebook. Our handbook, um, which which people should download from Miguel. We have in other studies, for example, used this um, 36-hour day uh, from, uh, uh, from our collaborators at Johns Hopkins. There are other resources. But what we know is that despite the interest and the focus, we still actually, we know that we don't know enough about the experience of, of carers. And by carers, I mean, I mean, not only the family and friend or informal caregivers that, that are unsung heroes in helping manage people with dementia, but also the, the paid care staff, whether it be a paid companion, the home care worker, the personal care aide in, in long-term care, the LPNs, the nurses, the physicians, the occupational therapists, the rec therapists, all of those involved in dementia care are also under stress and burden, and, and for them we know very very little. But with that in mind, we we leveraged a study that I launched earlier this year called the Can Protect study. Now, Can Protect um, it launched in March, and we have over two thousand participants already. The idea uh, behind Can Protect is it's a twenty year longitudinal study whereby we have uh, formal validated neuropsychological testing. So you do on your computer or your tablet. Um, and then there are actually brain training games that um, may help performance along those tests, and and then a whole series of questionnaires on cognition, on function, on behavior, on quality of life, on demographics, um, on health status. Um, some are mandatory, some are voluntary. For example, childhood experiences—they're a voluntary one. There's a brain injury questionnaire—that's a, vol- a voluntary one. You know, people um, tailor the study to meet their interests and their needs beyond the core battery. And as I mentioned, we have over 2000 participants, um, and anyone over 40 really can join. And it's about a, about a five hour commitment per year, not in one sitting, and then their annual visits. And as I said, we just launched in March and have generated really interesting data on those first 2000 participants. And, and I, and I believe we've, um, submitted nine abstracts based on these data to the canadian conference on dementia in november because it will be a very robust data set to understand brain aging for Canadians. now within which and this part has been under under appreciated and not promoted at all so the next stage is to really promote the caregiver component of can protect and there have been a number of rating scales developed specifically for caregivers, for care partners, to understand their stress in a, in, a, in a very organized fashion, to understand their role, understand their trajectory. And, and then it can be linked. And this is very unique in caregiver research. It can be linked to the objective neuropsychological testing that we have, and the markers of quality of life and stress and mental health symptoms, and, and, um, and how those links are affected by their sex or their cultural expectations on becoming a caregiver, or their role within the family, um, and their own health status, et-, et cetera. And to give us a really robust, detailed look at the experience of persons who care for dementia. Now, we have some preliminary data, and I'll share that with you, from about 49 uh, informal caregivers or caregivers, and about 37 uh, formal um caregivers, and, and sorry, uh, by informal caregivers, I, I've been using the term care partners for the family and friend caregivers and caregivers for the paid. I know the terminology varies um, and and we'll, we'll try to be consistent with that. Even the field is, is not always consistent in how we describe persons who care, aside from the broader term of carers. Now, here is, for example, a, a snippet from one of the scales, and I developed this Specifically, because I was looking for nice, robust measures of assessing stress, and I and there are validated scales out there, but none of them met the needs that we had for the study and and assessed caregiver thus in a in a detailed enough fashion um, to answer the questions that I had. So I developed the scale. It's got about forty two questions in it um, and organized into domains uh, such as stress related to the, to the cognition and cognitive impairment in, in the person with dementia, into their behavioral change, to stress associated with their functional impairments. There are also questions regarding the caregiver. Um, in that caregiving role, are there unmet needs or what is the emotional impact on that caregiver? How does stress interfere with the work um, or vocation of the caregiver and, and are there financial implications? How does that caregiving role fit into the context of other family members of the person with dementia? And what is the situational perception of the of of the caregiver, and how does that affect their stress? And again, not only can we assess stress based on this seven point Likert scale, but then we can link it both cross-sectionally and longitudinally over time to trajectories of health, wellness, cognition in this study. So that's why it's um it's a really nice add-on to the ongoing brain aging study, because we can get all the brain aging measures um, um, with with links specifically to caregiver experiences. Similarly, I developed a scale for for caregivers, for professional caregivers, um, formal caregivers. There is nothing. I searched and I found two scales on stress in inpatient nurses, not dementia specific at all. So I had to go and develop this scale as well, and and then I I worked on it um, with with uh, staff that I worked at in the seniors homes to make sure that it represented their experience and these were valid questions, and so we have this this uh, scale with about thirty four questions um, in these five domains. So are there factors associated with the patient or the resident, the person with dementia, that that affects stress in in various domains? Are there Uh, the family of origin the family that you know and the the formal and the informal caregivers of this person are there stressors associated in the interface of the the formal caregiver with the informal caregivers are there environment workplace factors are there psychological emotional factors and then interpersonal and interteam factors um there is a massive shortage of of health care aids and personal care aids across the world And, and and certainly in in canada and there's high turnover, and there's poor retention. And that has an impact on the caregivers, and there's a vicious cycle. So if you start on the right, fewer services and reduced provision of support result in more care responsibilities falling on care partners, a greater stress and burden, and a a greater need for dementia services. The greater need for those dementia services results in a greater stress, burnout, and turnover in in the formal caregivers and there's results in poorer services inconsistencies which is a common complaint i hear about is that's a new person every week for example say in in home care Um, and and then this results in 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 a greater burden on the informal caregiver who's got lots going on anyway and then is trying to patch up the holes because the formal services are not working and then it goes round and round and round and, and this is why um, <clears throat> I developed this study to, to assess both formal and informal caregivers, the whole care team. And, and that I, like I said, everything from the paid companion through to all of the allied health professionals and nurses and nurse practitioners and physicians involved in the care. Because we really need to know where are the choke points. Why do more people not want to do this work? How can we make it more fulfilling? Are there areas that we can address and target for interventions at a personal level, at a system level, at a patient level, to, to get away from this, this, this vicious circle and, and improve quality of life for, for, for everyone involved? So Here are some questions, for example, um, about, uh, from, from, from the um, informal caregiver scale, so the family and friends. And, and I mentioned the, the domains of cognitive, you know, cognition, behavior, function, unmet needs, work interference, family interference, and situational perception. And you can see some of those questions, and I won't go through them all, but all of these are based on my experience, my, I think, 24 years of practice, encountering um, you know um, caregiver difficulties and where they have struggled. And they're a very important part of, of what we do. When I see a new consultant clinic, I always make sure i speak to the to the caregiver separately and and also make sure i ask how they're doing and that happens in follow-up visits too because sometimes nobody knows how much they're suffering sometimes people do and that's happening more with greater um awareness but but just not enough so for example are they suffering with the cognitive changes in their loved one you know the, the forgetfulness such that they have to repeat themselves and, and or the person is losing items or, um, you know, or they're, or they're making, you know, they, they collectively make decisions and those conversations are completely forgotten. And then the caregiver is left in the lurch. Is it inattention? Um, is it difficulties in communication with language loss? Is it recognition of faces and places? Or is it around executive function decision making? In terms of behavior changes, we break it down, into those domains that I talked about earlier um, and, and with, with a, a further breakdown into the agitation symptoms because I know from experience that those are are underappreciated and not well measured. Um, the functional impairment is, it, is, is the stress associated with assisting with activities of daily, of daily living like the bathing and the dressing and the transferring and if I mean I've had patients who are big burly men and small frail wives who are trying to get them out of bed and on and off the toilet, and it's just terrible. And and, and it causes a great burden. But we need to know these details. Is it managing the instrumental activities of daily living? If one spouse always did the finances and then they are no longer able to do it, and the spouse who's never done it before is now responsible for managing the household, that is a great burden, right? Um, Is it going to medical appointments? Um, often a, a child will bring their their parent to appointment and they're looking at their you know watch or they're looking at their phone and they take a call and they gotta run out. And it's it's hard for them. Um, they have their own kids, they have their their their, their own job. Um, and and you know, driving wherever and finding parking in a hospital and all these miserable things to get the care that their loved one needs. That's a, a source of burden. What about legal issues? The notions of personal directives and power attorneys which differ in every province in alberta it's really weird in that a personal directive will cover everything but finances and will also cover legal documents and contracts which may have financial implications but are covered under a different document and a different act and and, and caregivers are overwhelmed with finding this out at the very last minute that no they do not have the you know the ability to prevent someone from making a very bad financial decision or who got scammed by by someone who got into their bank account and cleaned it out we've seen it all right and and this can be a great source of 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 burden Um, it it could be a volume issue are there just too many tasks okay for mom today I've got 19 things to do and oh I also have to eat right that that is that's unpleasant um the amount of time or, or is it, is it the, the person's loss of insight in, into their, their awareness? When I see people early on in the disease course, I'll ask, how's your memory? Well, it's not as good as it used to do. Something's going on. At some point, they come back to clinic, how's your memory? Memory's just fine, nothing wrong with it, right? And they're much, much more impaired. That can be very distressing. Those unmet needs, again, when you're giving full time more than you have to someone else, you know where where do you get to where how does your cup get filled do you have enough time for yourself or your interests are you able to do that how is your social life what about if you are a single mom and you're taking care of an aging parent with dementia how do you meet other people when all you're doing is taking care of your kids trying to pay the bills and 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 take care of your of your, of your parent um are you missing out and and do you feel guilty or inadequate for giving what you have which may in some eyes be be not enough it's a horrible feeling um the work interference and financial strain missing work or poor work quality due to caregiving obligations um absenteeism or even presenteeism because you're tired because you're up at night um financial hardship related to to caregiving and, and concerns of how to pay for those future caregiving needs. And again, there are big jurisdictional differences across the country. Uh, and this is why Can Protect actually is well-suited because it's a Canada-wide study and we have representation from every province. What we need are more caregiver representatives from every province to tell us, how are the systems affecting stress? Is, you know, are certain medicines covered or not? Is home care provided directly or is it through an agency? or is it all provincially covered and do those differences affect the amount of care that you're able to get or the quality of that care or the appropriateness of that care for the person that you that you love if they don't speak english and um and the the home care staff that comes through um only speak english or if there's a mismatch in cultural language does this result in adequate care? Are there ways around it? Or does it result in greater burden falling on the family member? Um, and, and, of course, I mentioned financial exploitation and scams, and those can be devastating. In terms of family interference and interpersonal con- conflict, it, you know, is there a detrimental effect of caregiving on your own personal relationships, not enough having, having enough time for your family, um, conflict with your family and how to provide care? And I see that often, among siblings, more often than I'd like, um, or, you know, the oldest daughter is the one who, who manages everything, and perhaps a son might take over the power of attorney when he's in town. I, I see that, and that's a very gross gender stereotype. Um, but part of can protect is actually understanding the gender roles, the roles of sex, of gender, of culture, in better, better disentangling. The contributors to stress uh, and again these are all come out of my clinical experience so I'm, I'm speaking to specific cases feeling underappreciated by family members for efforts in providing care i had a lovely woman who had one daughter in town another uh, daughter in the u.s and a son out west and they were never satisfied with the care that she gave and she gave everything she had and when they came in they felt like they needed to fix everything and And it it didn't necessarily feel fair. right? Now, um, as much as I could understand from those dynamics, what we need to do is understand that better. And then the situational perception. Do do people feel unable to control it? like It's out of control. Um, Do they not know enough? We try to provide as much education as we can. And for example, when I provide a dementia diagnosis at, at, say, an initial consult, I'll bring them back to do another education session, I don't want to squeeze it in there in the few minutes before the end of clinic. I give them websites and resources, all over society, locally, nationally, to look up, and I say, "Come back, bring your questions. This is what we're going to do." And then I also provide um, education on on lifestyle, and diet, on exercise, and all those other things as well. These families are are interested in that, but it all depends on the amount of services and 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 the availability of, of of educational materials being unprepared for new role or responsibility i mentioned that uh, before managing the finances what is your role is it a new role do you feel like you have a role do you feel like you have an identity has it been locked it's been taken um you know do you feel do you feel stuck or trapped in this role it's not the role that you want but no one else is going to do it and here's my parent and what if you didn't have a good relationship with your parent how does that even amplify or exacerbate these, these uh, feelings of being stuck or trapped um, and not seeing an end to it and not having enough family support or professional support, which brings us then to the stress in the, in, in the professional carers and, uh, and professional caregivers. Um, there are, and again, I, I, these all come from clinical experience and discussions with various staff I've worked with over the years um you know are there are there physical demands to, to do impaired um, basic activities i mean i talked about the the wife trying to get the, the burly husband out of bed S- similarly uh, is this person a two or three or four person transfer um is it the cognitive impairment that results in the stress is it is it the behavioral symptoms like you know the apathy mood agitation socially inappropriate behavior including you know sexually inappropriate behavior we, we do see sometimes people touching care staff inappropriately which is distressing to all right um and and how how about family factors is there a lack of understanding of the patients on behalf of the family of the disease and management sometimes there's a a disconnect between the carers and what they think they can provide and expectations of family who are either have been suffering and distressed or maybe have been disconnected and not necessarily uh, understanding what is the reality especially if they're say coming from out of town or they haven't been involved as much um are there different family perceptions of challenging behaviors or as I mentioned un- unrealistic expectations um is there conflict of disagreement between family members how does that play out for the person who's trying to provide care um you know at, at, at all at all levels um, it, you know our staff approached with, with questions from family that they have no answers to. Do they feel helpless because of that? Um, what about lack of respect or rudeness from family members? I've certainly seen that. And And how does that affect someone's ability or desire to work in this profession? What about the environmental workplace factors? Is there a heavy workload? Well, that's a silly question, right? There is always a heavy workload. How are the hours? COVID told us how bad this can get because People couldn't then work, uh, go between different homes, and they were stuck in one home, um, and and there was no coverage, and so their hours became longer, and 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 the workload heavier, and it was very very hard for everyone involved, all around. Um, is there lack of backup from other healthcare professionals in your own profession, or you know in in allied professions, and how does the team work? Is there a lack of adequate training? Well often this is the case and how does that affect yes um are there unrealistic demands from from management or ownership you know is it a public health care model is it a private model who is calling the shots are there sufficient there living wage you know are there sufficient benefits and and if not how does that affect the ability to to give and care the psychological emotional factors of, of of the of the the caregivers is our internal conflict or guilt or helplessness exhaustion and burnout witnessing people decline um the death of someone with whom you're attached i feel this regularly witnessing the suffering and and inadequate preparation to deal with the emotional needs of a patient or family and and um embarrassment or shame you know um about someone's behavior perhaps when you're on an outing, a group outing. Are there interpersonal factors like um, difference in caregiving approach or conflict amongst team members uh, who are providing care? How does that how does that then play out in terms of someone's job satisfaction, their willingness to, to care, to interface with the family caregivers, you know, to do that extra or to move on to something else? Um, are the language or cultural differences, which I alluded to earlier, between the caregiver and the patient is there and I, i've seen this um is there a perception of racial prejudice from patient uh, family or others 90 um, percent of of personal care aides in canada are um, women of color and how does that that play out in terms of uh work the workforce and respect from from colleagues from from administration from patients um the intersectionality of this job and appreciating it is very important. If we want to recruit and, and retain healthcare workers who, who work with persons with dementia, uh, their perceptions of different levels of commitment or work ethic. These are team issues, right? Someone working harder than the other, someone more competent than the other, or the perception of that. All of this contributes. I'll show you some data. As I mentioned, we have only 49 um, family informal care you know care partners and and 37 i think um formal ones and we haven't promoted this at all um so that this th- through mcgill cares is a great opportunity um we'll hear more and more about this uh, over time and I'll, I'll be seeking funding specifically to really amp up this to get to the target of 500 family caregivers 500 professional formal caregivers um, across the country of various ages, of various um you know of of males and females of various um you know gender identification and across the ethno-cultural eth- um ethnoracial diversity that is Canada um, to, to really try to understand this, this situation better. Um so here are just some brief and preliminary data from from the, uh, the family caregivers, the mean age of our, our caregivers is about 62, but it ranges um, uh, from 40 up to, up to 80, uh, I believe, various degrees of education. And then here are just the stress on that, that Likert scale that I, that I described earlier, and here are the scores uh, classified by the cognitive behavior function, unmet needs, work interference financial interference and situational perception domains. And maybe I'll just discuss a few of them. And so some of these, and again, these are small numbers and these are unsophisticated data at, at the moment because they are sheer mean scores. They are not adjusted for any of the covariates that we might consider important, like age, sex, gender, cultural group, education, um, you know, uh, health status, mental health, all of those caregiver factors that can contribute to stress. Um, none of those have been incorporated into this, um, and we will do that because those are nice, uh, robust um, statistical models that we'll we will build once we get large enough numbers to do that. Uh, you can't just run all of those covariates with a small number because then you just get um, you get imprecise estimates and 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 errors. So you have to have a large sample to really to to really be able to include those 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 contributors but just based on a sheer frequency of reporting, um, it was actually forgetfulness that was the the highest contributor to stress with the highest mean score. Um, And and I didn't expect that, but, and who knows, that may be a a robust finding or with larger samples, it may become different, but that's what we have right now. Number two was uh, item number 19, which is caregiving time um, based on, on, on functional impairment. And that, that actually makes a lot of stress. Um, uh, spending a, a large amount of time uh, managing the functional deficits that have evolved in the person's dementia can certainly be uh, a contributor to stress. Third on the list was communication difficulties. And of course, I've seen this clinically. We all have. Um, trying to understand what we're being told or trying to get our point across and give instructions to someone um, can can break down, and when it does, You can imagine and and you know probably that it contributes to stress um fourth on the list was item number seven which were emotional symptoms so these are the mood and anxiety symptoms in the person with with dementia whether it be worry excessive worry or sadness and and um in my clinical experience it's the worrying and the worrying that can be infectious and 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 results in stress more than 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 the sadness and then the the number five, I'll we'll probably stop at number five, um, is um, decision making. I'm oh, Sorry, um, is item number two. Sorry, inattention, so the inability to 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 again a cognitive domain to focus to attend to listen, is associated with with a high report of stress. Now on to the the um, formal caregivers um, and and. Again, only 37 of them, about similar age, so, so a lot of these are family caregivers. And now one thing we will do in the next step of this study is we will drop that minimum age. Right now, the entrance into Can Protect is cut off at 40, but that actually precludes many care staff. Um, m- many of the staff I work with are, are under 40, and, and I want to know their experience beyond what they tell me. And, and so we'll very shortly uh drop the age just to 18 and it'll become just a study of brain aging in any canadian 18 or over over the next 20 years um but that will allow um uh, a larger representation of 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 caregivers and um, as mentioned the domains were patient or resident factors family factors environmental uh, workplace factors psychological emotional factors and interpersonal we'll just go through the top five again and item six was the number one. And this really caught me off guard. Um, and it was, it was apathy. So apathy, which I study on trial in apathy. I write about it. We published a really nice paper on apathy in advance of dementia um, as an undetected uh, factor that contributes to faster progression to dementia. Um, and, uh, and apathy is broken down into three domains, which is reduced interest, reduced initiative, and reduced emotional reactivity. So reduced interest is the that not um, not caring as much about things that you used to maybe you used to really like music, you know, you don't anymore. Um, reduced initiative is the get up and go has got up and went. Um, people are, are less likely to get out of bed and less likely to want to get up off the couch. And then the third domain is a, a, a reduction in emotional reactivity. So they they become more meh, you know. Um, there's less expression in one way or the other and they're more muted and family members can feel disconnected from from you know from their loved one and and caregivers can feel disconnected from the people they care for if they're not potentially showing any interest or emotion in in that whole caregiving experience so that that was the highest scored domain. i'm again quite surprised um number five cognitive impairment so that is consistent, you know, with, uh, with what we're seeing in family caregivers. And then the uh, number seven, item seven was the third, and that's the mood and anxiety symptoms. And then number 27 was fourth on the list, which is exhaustion. So um, in, in the psychological and emotional factors, it's exhaustion in care staff that is, you know, the fourth biggest contributor. Uh, or the fourth highest mean stress score, you know, in this small sample of 37, uh, 37 people. And then um, um, item four uh, is the physical demands was fifth on the list, which you know is intuitive and it really makes sense. But what we'll see as we get a larger sample and we can address those lower ones better, we'll 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 be able to predict. Um, who will have stress based on their individual factors, and and then and then address those earlier on in the course, and whether that's for a family caregiver who's just taking on this new role, or where it's it's new staff in home care or in long term care, um, you know, or or in other community agencies in a day program or hospital, um, and, and and address those issues to ensure that then their work experience is better so they stay and continue to care for our loved ones with with dementia the the big question is how do caregivers cope and it can be in a myriad ways uh there are myriad ways that this can happen and and and, um people can can get angry you know everyone's entitled to a meltdown on occasion Um, they can have anxiety they can have stress they can feel grief and it's a mourning, it's the loss of identity, it's a loss of their own role, it's potentially the loss of their role as a caregiver, once their loved one passes on, um, they, they, they wonder who they might might be, you know, and, and, and they might turn to alcohol or drugs, and, and develop mental health conditions of their own beyond, beyond, you know, symptoms like stress or anxiety. Um, overall, again, leading to, to the burnout, exhaustion, A loss of oneself and it's a really big issue we are starting to understand how to address it and how to manage it there are resources but we need to know more and what we need to know more is at an individual level based on really robust data so we can say okay someone with your profile these are your risks proactively let's make sure you do this and this and this because we know from you know from this large sample of canadians that that um, you are at risk for, you know, for um, for for burnout, for, for for stress, for taking sick leave off of your own work, or or whatever the outcome may be. But there are resources, and as Claire mentioned, the the handbook um, is one of them, and, and is really worthwhile. Um, there are lots of you know infographics about how to reduce stress for caregivers staying connected to others that social interaction is really important to seek and accept help i've often taken family members aside and said listen you need someone you need you, you you need to make sure that you have someone to discuss this with who can hear you who can provide you support which is always a challenge because that's more time Away from what they feel that they need to do, right? And and there is that 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 challenge here. You know, is that you have to have time. You're gonna make time um, when you don't have any to learn. Lack of understanding of the disease process is such a big contributor. Respite care so fundal- fundamentally important. Um, sometimes family caregivers will absolutely refuse uh, respite care because it's a pride issue, or they feel guilty. And and working through those barriers is really important. Um, And and, and because people have to practice self-care in order to practice care. This does include exercise and eating better. Of course, when you're tired, your body changes. You want more fast carbs and processed foods, which increases your own inflammatory response. Sugar so is the brain killer, and people get sick. Meditation and breathing practices are very important. Whatever one can do in their context, but it's important that carers are also cared for. Which then brings us to the last slide before uh, the discussion with Claire. And again, a reminder of the CanProtect study. Um, right now, open to all Canadians 40 and up, soon to be all Canadians 18 and up. The consents, the study information, are all there on this website, can-protect.ca, can-protect.ca. We also have a a help desk for people who have questions about the study. You can either email or phone. As I mentioned, there are brain games within the study. And we are also in the process of organizing a caregiver advisory group from from CANProtect participants who are caregivers to help inform us about the important needs in the field and we either have just or will be in the next days sending out a newsletter to all CANProtect participants, well uh, about almost 2,000 of them who consented to be sent the newsletter Um, and, uh, and that will highlight some of the initial findings from the study. As well as, uh, yeah, seeking volunteers for this uh, advisory group. Uh, Again, which will help us steer this big boat to answer the right questions over the years because our own, my own clinical experience only goes so far. And I need to hear from you, I need to hear from carers, formal caregivers, informal caregivers about what we need to know, what we need to do, because we can evolve this study over time. And it's not set in stone. And we can add important questionnaires or or assessments. But that comes from having participants. So hopefully, those of you who are watching um, are able to join and help share your your knowledge, your expertise, your experience with clinicians and researchers like me so that we can overall improve over time our ability to care for persons with dementia. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for such a comprehensive presentation. I mean, wow, what a way to kick off season 4 and to really provide such a really incredible overview of all the potential factors that people are experiencing. You know, I think that a lot of, you know, you 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 alluded to the fact that a lot of caregivers suffer in silence. And Very you know, nice. a lot of people think, a lot of people think I'm all alone and you know, I'm the only one that's feeling guilty or I'm the only one that's doing this or you know i i would call it the also the the not good enough syndrome right like i'm not a good enough wife i'm not a good enough mother daughter son spouse right and so i have i have a feeling that so many people who are watching this webcast are sitting there going oh my god that's me right that's me oh, and, but you just yeah like yeah. like i hope so and i hope that i think they but you've highlighted is that these are normal symptoms of caregiving right you know um Absolutely. one 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 aspect that I think we need to reiterate is how verbal aggression could lead, not with everybody, but it could potentially lead to physical aggression. And I work with a lot of, lot of families, and I hear from many people that, oh, it only happened once that they grabbed me. It only happened once. Can you just allude a little bit more on that point?
1: Absolutely. So, so again, with our episodic approach to to aggression, yeah, it only happened once. Okay, it only happened once. But the question is, first of all, what happened only once and how severe was it, right? And um, sometimes our measures of, uh, of agitation only assess frequency. And you can have something very severe that happened once that is a very big deal. We need to be more aware about that. Um, in terms of the evolution of symptoms, what tends to happen is that verbal aggression can, again, it can evolve insidiously and become a change that that isn't identified as a as a symptom or a syndrome you know within within the dementia process within the disease process and and so it's a bit normalized and okay i know not to do this or say this because they will do that right and then it, it amplifies from there and it's just it's 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 tolerated over time and and people will be snappy or snarkier or they might yell and you know what to, you know what to do not to make that happen but this um while it may result in peace for a period of time at some point the brain changes enough that even that's not good enough and i've seen we all many of us have some some, some pretty graphic um things you know uh, happen as a result of of physical aggression um
0: and, so the family um, will so the families will be asking then, what do I do? And I've get. Right. I've received a lot of these calls, you know, as I as I work privately mm-hmm. also with a lot of families. And so, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what they need to do if if they feel threatened is they've got they need to bring their with, with the hopefully with the help of other family members, is bring their loved one to the emergency room because you can't if it gets to a very serious situation. Mm-hmm. You can't just let that go, you know. That's Um, right. So it needs, you're
1: you're absolutely right. Absolutely. It needs clinical attention. Ideally, it's identified and managed long before an emergency visit is required. And that's why I really advocate for identification of verbal aggression, that change in style or tone, because it's at that point, then more systematic and rigorous non-pharmacological measures work. Right. When you look at studies that say which are better, pharmacological and non-pharmacological, you can't actually compare because um, when someone's really, you know, physically aggressive and violent, you you can't you you can't you know give them music therapy or aromatherapy. It's just it's too it's too late, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you end up unfortunately giving medications, but those have a chance at working earlier on, and and so. Studies that, that, that claim one is better than the other, they actually have to be administered in the same group to really understand that. And that's hard to do methodologically. But in and, the verbal yeah. aggression group, non-pharmacological work, um, measures can work better. Montessori materials, for example, have been shown uh, to work in people who lose their verbal skills or have impaired verbal skills, but then get frustrated with that you know, using their hands. So those things work better at that stage. But also, you know, medications like, you know, garden variety antidepressants are much more likely to have a good effect at that stage. And not because someone's depressed, but because of other effects of that medication that the people, I, I mentioned the filter fuse um, and frustration tolerance. And I kind of, you know, I kind of use those three Fs. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and the filter is better, the fuse is shorter, and the frustration tolerance is better, you know, often when when treated at that stage with with gentler medications but if mm-hmm. it's if you end up in the emergency room and i, I i'm loath to see my patients end up in the emergency room they will be prescribed antipsychotics yes. and and we 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 don't want that unnecessarily now again i don't want to vilify these medicines either because um the only indicated medications in, in canada there is an antipsychotic in the u.s very recently a different one um, and they they certainly do have a role, but we want to use them as a last resort, and um, and and we want to identify this much earlier uh, mm-hmm. than than the time when the only option is to go to emergency because then that's what happens.
0: Right. And, and that's and, why and it's, and it, it's yeah it's so important to educate I think the public at large that dementia is so much more than just memory loss. People think dementia is memory loss. It isn't. And as you showed, you know it 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 results in a significant change in person's behavior and you know and you and you, as you mentioned as well you know when a person's behavior changes it does and if they have dementia it's not it's not the person it's the illness and that's right it's so and, and it's, it's the illness and it's and I, I i compare it i hate to use this but i compare it by like a devil sitting on a person's shoulder and saying act this way say this say everything like you know Think, say anything you want, right? Mm-hmm. Act before you think, right? But it is, it's like right. a devil telling them what to do. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, why bother going to see a doctor? There's no cure. But even more so, it's important to ha- to work with a doctor because when these symptoms of depression, agitation, verbal and physical aggressions begin to occur, that's where me- there are medications that could treat that, right? And not Absolutely. wait till that. Crisis yeah. occurs, right? And
1: yeah, it, and crisis medicine is seldom good medicine when it comes to dementia, right? Yeah, so we want yeah. to be forewarned and address this early on as, as much
0: as possible. You know, and you know, and I work with a population where I mean, I would say the majority of people I regard the kids, right? So it's so it's mum or dad. There's a mum or dad still alive, but I find oftentimes the mum or the dad aren't being honest with the kids in terms of how bad it's getting, right? There's a stigma. Yes. They don't want to tell their friends. They don't want to tell their kids how bad it is. And that becomes a problem because they, yes. they are the ones that are suffering in silence. And yeah. it always takes a crisis to occur of the healthy parent for something to change. Right. Yeah. And and it's it's so important to be honest and to talk about it so that you can get the support that you need, because then because unfortunately, especially if you're dependent on the health, the public health care system, if you're in a crisis, you're going to have to wait months and months and months to get that help. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's there's y- such a know, stigma. And-
1: There is, and absolutely addressing the stigma is really important because I see this play out time and time again, when one spouse is covering for the other Mm -hmm. and because of stigma or shame or whatever, and and then that spouse passes away and then uh, the person left behind has cognitive functional behavioral changes Mm -hmm. and the kids are caught very much off guard and they think it just happened suddenly when in fact Mm -hmm. it may have been happening for a number of years and could have been addressed earlier, were there less stigma and more openness to talk about these things?
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us today. And I really encourage uh, you know our viewers to participate in your Can Protect project. Um, we will also put a link uh, under the trusted resources of our website at mcgill.ca dementia. And, and, and as you mentioned again as well, nothing replaces education. You know, the more educated you are on this disease, the more educated you are on the resources that could support you, the more ahead you are with regards to all the legal and financial aspects. But it's really, Mm -hmm. you know, being one step ahead of the illness at all times and becoming as educated as possible. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
1: My, My absolute pleasure, Claire. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So this webcast is an initiative of the McGill University Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing list to be notified about upcoming episodes of McGill Cares, as well as other important programs and resources from us, you can email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.